From the Free Speech Project at Georgetown University, this is Speaking Freely. I'm Sanford Unger, and on this episode of Speaking Freely, we talk about the First Amendment with Adam Liptak, Supreme Court correspondent for The New York Times. In the fall of 1964, the free speech movement, known as the FSM, was born at the University of California at Berkeley, which was ground zero for the student movement of the 1960s. As the new school year began, the university started enforcing rules prohibiting students from engaging in political activities on campus. The students protested, and things came to a head in December as thousands rallied before a sit-in at the administration building. Folk singer and activist Joan Baez was among those protesting that day. Mario Savio, one of the FSM founders, addressed the crowd, telling them they were cogs in the machine that was the university. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus. May I have have your attention, please? I am Dr. Edward Strong, Chancellor of the Berkeley campus. This assemblage has developed to such a point that the purpose and work of the university have been materially impaired. While students of the 1960s fought for their First Amendment rights, things have changed on today's campuses. Some students view the issue differently, and they sometimes shut down the voices of those they don't agree with. I spoke with the New York Times Supreme Court correspondent, Adam Liptak, about the First Amendment and the various lenses through which people view free speech. Liptak has practiced law and taught courses on the First Amendment in the Supreme Court. We began our conversation with his assessment of the current court on First Amendment issues. The court led by Chief Justice John Roberts is a very strong pro-free speech court, although we might mean something different by free speech today than what, say, the Warren Court thought about free speech. This court protects the classical free speech values of the political dissenter and the lonely pamphleteer and the kinds of things that Uh, the older, more liberal courts protected. But this court's also pro-free speech in areas that not everyone is on board with on the left, including in campaign financing, where using the First Amendment to justify the Citizens United decision, the court was free speech in that sense. In commercial speech, the court is free speech in that sense. In cases involving religion, the court seems to be sympathetic to the view that First Amendment free speech rights are implicated when people object on religious grounds to doing various things. And are there surprises among the justices in in this consensus? I have a sense that some of the normal divisions are are obscured. Uh, I think of the uh, Snyder v. Phelps, the Westboro Baptist Church case, where it was, I believe, eight to one, and there was quite a coalition of so-called liberal and conservative justices. You do get lopsided cases. It's a little hard sometimes to say which is the liberal and which is the conservative side of a given case. The one in the Westboro Baptist Church case, the case about uh, hateful protests at military funerals, (coughs) was Justice Alito. 
who, who does find some kinds of speech just to be beyond the pale. Justice Alito, of course, a conservative. But the other person I would think is fairly weak on free speech cases is a liberal justice, Justice Breyer, who also has his doubts about whether the government shouldn't be able to regulate at least some kinds of speech. So to your point, that's exactly right. There's, these are not the predictable 5-4 breakdowns, except in campaign finance, where they are the five Republican appointees right. are the ones who are in favor of Who believe that political contributions are free speech, and to, to simplify. Certainly political spending, yes. Right, right. Is there some worry that if the composition of the court should change dramatically in the next few years, which of course it could because of the ages of some mm -hmm. of the justices, that this consensus behind free speech could break down? I don't see it. We don't know very <coughs> much about the newest justice, Justice Gorsuch's views about First Amendment issues on the Supreme Court, but his views on the Tenth Circuit, where he served as an appeals court judge for some time, we're very much in the mold of what we see on the contemporary Supreme Court. And I would imagine that the next Donald Trump appointee, at least on this issue, will not be out of keeping with what we're seeing on the Supreme Court. They might be out of step with society. Certainly, you know, the younger generation, my daughter in college, has a different view of free speech than people 20 years or 30 years older. But I think this court uh, will be consistently a free speech court, with notable exceptions. You know, when national security is on the other side, right. free speech falls away. <clears throat> when the reputation of the judiciary is on the other side, free speech falls away. But in most cases, including cases which really involve ugly conduct, these protests at military funerals, animal crush videos, violent video games, people lying about military medals, the speech side in all of those cases won and almost entirely by lopsided majorities. In the past, there have been some decisions or some participation decisions by justices that seemed anomalous. Uh, the one that stands out in my mind right now is Justice, the late Justice Scalia on the flag burning yes. case. People remind conservatives sometimes, especially yes. in, in, under the new administration, that when Donald Trump is saying, is, is giving one of his rhetorically excessive speeches about such matters that remind him that Justice Scalia voted for free flag burning as free speech. So Justice Scalia loved to tell that story and, <laughs> and, and, and all credit to him. He said he has no use as a private citizen for the bearded sandal wearing hippie who wants to burn a flag and that if he were the king he would throw all those guys in the pokey but he has to follow what the Constitution commands and he says the First Amendment says you can engage in flag burning. And that's a good lesson that judges, justices don't always follow their policy preferences. Sometimes they feel they're bound by the law to do things that they wouldn't want to do. I wouldn't oversell it though. It's, <laughs> it's hard to find too many examples of that kind of conduct in the First Amendment realm and really except for a couple of uh, areas of criminal law, other realms where Justice Scalia wasn't a reliable conservative vote, but those, those are legitimate. Now, political scientists have done studies of how justices vote in free speech cases, and the political scientists find that they tend to protect speech that they like, the content of right. the speech that they like. Are you surprised by the devotion of Chief Justice Roberts to free speech? He, I think some people didn't expect him to be as committed to free speech as he seems to be. On the court, he has not only been a consistent, almost consistent, there are exceptions, 
a, a strong proponent of free speech rights, but he's also done something unusual where he takes great care to spread out the good cases to the other justices, right. but he tends to but disproportionately keep the free speech cases for himself. So he's written a lot of the major free speech cases, and he seems uh, authentically devoted to it. Although, uh, you know, in the, the two major exceptions to pro-free speech, uh, Holder Against Humanitarian Law Project, where Roberts writes the majority opinion saying that someone who ran afoul of the material support law forbidding aid to terrorist organizations by providing speech-related benign help could nonetheless be prosecuted. That was Roberts, so that's, that's a case where free speech doesn't win. Mm -hmm. And also a case where Florida and many other states try to do a little mild regulation where uh, state court judges run for election. And there was, there was an ethics rule that said you can't personally ask for money if you're running for a judicial office. And a lot of people thought that was a free speech problem. Chief Justice Roberts joining the four liberals, uh, five to four, says no, we're going to sustain that ethics regulation. So national security, judicial dignity, there are areas where he's not that strong. Right. But in general, you're quite right, he is. People like to speculate, all these many years later, about the Pentagon Papers case from 1971, whether courts would reliably continue to rule in favor of the media, of two major national, well, two major newspapers. Washington Post was not a national newspaper at the time, as it did uh, six to three on the occasion of the, the Pentagon Papers publication, ruled against the Nixon yes. administration. What do you think about that? Um, you mentioned that national security is potentially one of the exceptions. I think this kind of law is contextual. Uh, that was in an era where there was widespread distrust of the Nixon administration right. and widespread respect for the major news organizations who were sort of trusted partners in governing the nation. Mm -hmm. And I think in that climate, we got the benefit of the doubt. I don't know that in the current climate, those news organizations, to say nothing of BuzzFeed or the Huffington Post, right. would get the same kind of answer. And as you know, Sandy, the Pentagon Papers, controversial though they were, were historical. Yes. Very hard to say they're endangering current military operations. Very difficult case to make then. And Erwin yes. uh, uh, Griswold, then the Solicitor General, said a few years later that although he argued on behalf of the Nixon administration that publication, continued publication, would damage national security. He didn't believe it himself. Yes. And successfully so. It seems increasingly to be a mistake to try to divide First Amendment decisions, free speech issues into liberal and conservative matters because they're, they're not, it's not predictable. I mean, the notion that today many young people, as you suggested earlier, in colleges and universities, do not hue to what we think of as the classical defense of free yes. speech is an interesting development. Right. I think on campus and among younger people, equality and dignity matter more than liberty. And th those are important values on both sides, and you know people have to be thoughtful about it. But the classic First Amendment theory says, let people say what they like. The best response to it is more speech and it'll all get sorted out in the end. The new thinking among younger people is some of these statements are deeply, profoundly hurtful, right. marginalize people, with, you know, destroy their dignity, and they ought not be allowed, particularly in settings where you're trying to have a civil discourse 
in an educational institution about what we should be doing. And these two ideas are very hard to reconcile. In the events at Charlottesville in August of 2017, I think a lot of people were uh, suddenly startled that their classic definitions of free speech might be challenged when some of the speakers were armed, when they were really quite intent upon violence, as or, or, or so they admitted yes. afterwards. Um, what does that do to free speech theory? You know, once once you inject the real imminent threat of violence, free speech has nothing to say about right. it. That you you can the police should take action if there's actual imminent threat of violence. Right. So an aspect of the Charlottesville case is easy. But when the ACLU went to court on behalf of the marchers, they went to court on the understanding that there would be profoundly ugly speech peacefully presented. Right. I don't and, think they And that knew drives people the, crazy too. Right. Yeah, no, they, they didn't and they, they're now taking the position that A, they're not going to uh, defend anybody who wants to be armed while they're protesting and B, they're not going to, their doors aren't open to everybody always because they have limited resources. But in general, the ACLU, let's go back to the Skokie case when right. you know, neo-Nazis wanted to march in an area of Illinois uh, with a big Jewish population. No question that this would be a profoundly hurtful thing, but not dangerous. And these people were marginal groups yes. without sort of the, the wind of an, uh, the Trump administration sort of in the mix. So again, the historical context matters to how you think about and what the courts do about First Amendment law. And I think Charlottesville is a profound test for all of this. But at the same time, the First Amendment does have this concept of the heckler's veto. We're not going to let somebody's speech be stifled because the other guy is protesting too loud. So the whole thing is a rapidly shifting and problematic landscape. If this is not an unreasonable question, tell me if it is. If the heckler's veto came before the Supreme Court today, what do you think would happen? I think they would rule as a court 20 years ago or 40 years ago would have. And also, which there, is to there say, is a, which is to say they would, absent really extraordinary circumstances, not say you can suppress speech because it's going to give rise to counter speech. Right. But what would they say about the counter speech? Would they say that it's all right to disrupt the speaker because the disruptors have free speech rights as well? It really depends on the circumstances, sure. and it really depends on what you mean by disruption. There, there's too many factors in play to say what the sure. Supreme Court would do, but they would try to achieve what we used to think was achievable, and maybe we don't think so anymore, which is let both sides talk. Yes. Have speech, have counter speech, let people make up their minds based on full information. We have this notion, but this is you know, you can really ask questions about this in the era of you know, fake news and, and democratization of information on the internet. A significant part of First Amendment theory is that over time the truth will come out and people will make right. the right decision. But that was a little easier when they were trusted gatekeepers of, of information. Now that information has gone wild, sure. it's, it's harder to know whether the average person is really going to make the right decision. Well, and it's a fundamental cornerstone of democracy. There be debate and dialogue yes. and issues get talked through. Right. The, what is different now is that so many of those conversations are no longer civil. We thought we could count on civility as a factor. It's partly that, and there's partly and increasingly no agreed upon set of facts. 
People come right. to the table with their own understanding of the facts, and you're never going to have a constructive dialogue if you don't agree on the very premise of what you're talking about. So is the Supreme Court, I mean, we all revere the Supreme Court, or some of us have grown up kind of revering the Supreme Court and its wisdom, et cetera. Is the Supreme Court up to the current challenge of trying to adjudicate this mess that we have in our hands surrounding so free speech? The Supreme Court can be criticized on, on many grounds, but it is still easily the best functioning part of our government. Very able grown-ups work there. They're not shy. They take the big cases. They decide the big cases. They do it in a serious way. And given what we see in the other branches of the government, you know, the, the especially now, particularly these days, uh, and the Supreme Court is also uh, quite alert to the limits of its power. It's not going to go further than what society will accept, but it does, particularly now that they're back to nine, it does think it has an important role to play. And I got to say, in light of some perceived dysfunction in the other branches, I think we ought to be glad to have them. And do you think they will? be willing to take on some of these fundamental Trump issues that, that could put them under fire by the president? Short answer is yes, but I think they might also do what they did in the first go-round of the travel ban is issue a kind of moderate compromise, thoughtful interim decision and cool down the temperature. They're not only about making big bold statements, sometimes they're about uh, making an incremental decision which, right. which takes the temperature down a notch. Bottom line, you're confident that the Supreme Court is going to handle free speech issues wisely and well in the years ahead. Well, that's a big statement, uh, but <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll sign on about 80%. I think in the free speech area, if you care about old-fashioned free speech values, this is a good court. On lots and lots of other stuff, this is a court where five Republican appointees dominate the court and vote in a generally conservative direction. So if you're conservative, you should be happy with this court. Uh, if you're a liberal, you should be a little less happy with this court. That kind of breaks down on free speech issues. And if you believe in old-fashioned free speech values, which not everyone does, and a lot of liberals less and less, but if you believe in them, this is not a bad court. Adam Liptak is the Supreme Court correspondent for The New York Times. For an extended version of our conversation, you can visit the Speaking Freely section of our website, freespeechproject.georgetown.edu. Our project is funded by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. I'm Sanford Unger. Thanks for joining us for this edition of Speaking Freely. <laughs>